Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Transition time, President-elect Biden formally getting to work. Heavyweight hopes, former Fed boss Janet Yellen could be among Biden's cabinet picks. And vaccinate to voyage, Qantas might require it for international flights. It's Tuesday, let's make a move. First move today, we're focused on both U.S. transitions and global economic transformations. Let me explain. A full three weeks after Election Day, the presidential transition now begins. And of course, there is not a moment to lose. Firstly, we're headed for transformation at the Treasury. Former Fed Chair Janet Yellen set to become America's first female Treasury Secretary. But we'll walk you through a full who's who of Biden's potential picks very shortly. All this, of course, comes as vaccine breakthroughs propel hopes of a post-pandemic world and the economic transformation that will then ensue. That's going to take work, though. Russia today adding to the vaccine room, saying their Sputnik vaccine is more than 90% effective in interim results. Details on all that coming up, too. For now, though, global investors continue to focus, I think, more on the future rather than what we're dealing with in the present. We add and look to add to Monday's gains after AstraZeneca's late-stage vaccine data showed a 90% efficacy rate in certain cases beaten down value stocks. The pandemic losers that will do well when economies improve do continue to outperform here. Investors also reacting, I think, with pre-Thanksgiving thanks for that Janet Yellen pick. She's crisis ready. That's how I'd phrase it. She's a known quantity and is seen certainly by investors as a safe pair of hands. She's also a consensus builder. And oh boy, does Congress need that right now more than ever. She also understands the need for more spending and actually said as much in September. I quote, there is a huge amount of suffering out there. The economy needs the help. All right, let's talk transition. John Harwood joins us now. John, great to have you with us. As always, there are plenty of what you could call safe pair of hands when you look across these picks. Many, in many cases, they were the deputies to those that were running the certain branches of governments in the past. And whether you believe in their policies or not, they have experience. And the last few months in particular has shown that matters. Exactly. You know, the Trump administration... Uh, whatever its ideological orientation, and it's not really been consistent, uh, has not shown a high level of competence. The latest example, obviously, is the pandemic. What you have from these Biden officials is uh, knowledge, experience, temperament, competence, all things that uh, can be brought to bear against the pandemic uh, and against the economic uh, struggles that we face. And as you mentioned, Janet Yellen, as somebody who has been the top White House economic advisor under Bill Clinton, who has chaired the Federal Reserve, uh, who uh, now will become the Treasury Secretary, has a very intimate knowledge of the relationship between monetary policy and fiscal policy, what the economy is going to need. Doesn't mean she's going to be able to get everything she wants, but she certainly can work very closely with her old colleague, Jerome Powell, to try to figure out what they can do, even without the Congress, to get the economy up and running again. Yeah, it's fascinating when you see someone who's considered on the left of the Democratic Party, like Elizabeth Warren, who also 
allegedly had eyes on this seat as well, saying this is an outstanding pick. And you see Wall Street and investors celebrating too. You know you've made a pretty strategic choice here. And John, I think something that you and I understand very well, she's a labour economist. She understands and at times was criticised for talking about things like inequality, pay disparity in the marketplace as well. She can look at this economy and say, look, the unemployment rate says one thing. I know there's bigger challenges beneath the surface. Exactly, Julia. And, you know, the democratic economic debate was centered around the issue of income inequality before COVID hit. Long run trend of hollowing out the middle uh, the middle segment of the American uh, economy, middle skill jobs, middle uh, class incomes, all uh, shrinking. COVID has made all of those problems worse. It has shoved down, uh, pushed down people at the bottom of the spectrum, uh, and it has created an enormous amount of suffering, as you quoted uh, Janet Yellen as uh, having said. And that suffering is going to intensify as we get to the end of the year if we don't get additional uh, uh, COVID relief because eviction protections are going away, expanded unemployment is going away, uh, and you're going to have, as this uh, pandemic crests, uh, a tremendous amount of pain uh, that threatens to put the economy into reverse, to actually shrink the size of the economy, to raise unemployment again. All of those things are what's on the plate of Joe Biden, Janet Yellen, and Jay Powell as well. Yeah, and they've worked together in the past, to your point as well. So in many of these cases, they're known quantities and the relationship there is is also established, which is critical when you're facing numerous crises as as the country is. I'm jumping ahead, John, because we've not even formally seen any of these announced. But do you think there's any challenges in the confirmation process if we see, of course, a Republican Senate and we see a Democratic House? And and looking across some of these picks for Joe Biden, what we've seen is there's been challenges in the past. And certainly uh, President Trump faced his own challenges in getting some of his initial picks through, too. Yes, there will be challenges, of course. And Republicans uh, have uh, made it abundantly clear uh, that they are going to uh, uh, challenge what Joe Biden wants to do. However, uh, I do think it will be difficult for them to stop people at the um, the highest level positions that the president-elect has identified, uh, people who have strong relationships uh, and history on both sides of the aisle. That includes Janet Yellen, even though she is uh, somebody uh, who is seen as more liberal. She does have those relationships with Wall Street. Uh, Republicans understand that she's uh, competent for the job. She's gotten Republican votes in the past. Tony Blinken was the staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which is traditionally operated in a bipartisan way. I think both of those picks uh, are going to be extremely difficult for Republicans to stop. Yeah. And uh, I think the economy perhaps will be stronger at the very least as a result of that. (laughs) John Howard, thank you so much. All right, coronavirus cases are skyrocketing across the United States with hospitalizations hitting record highs for two straight weeks. Yet despite that, millions of Americans are ignoring public health warnings to stay home for the Thanksgiving holiday. CNN's Ryan Young joining us live now from Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. Ryan, great to have you with us. So despite the warnings from some of the highest health authorities in the country, people are saying, hey, I want to be with my families and I'll take the risk. And that's what you're seeing today. Yeah, yeah. I really call it the COVID fatigue. I think people are sort of tired of being 
uh, trapped inside for the most part. And you're seeing sort of that expanding base of people who want to go somewhere for the holidays, especially to see their family. We know 2020 has been very difficult for all of us, quite honestly, throughout the world. If you look behind us here at Hartsfield-Jackson International, this has been a very busy day. I mean, we've seen... uh, hundreds of people uh, since this morning. Now, look at the woman right there. She's actually has mask in her hand. She can hand those out because there are people who are still arriving to this airport, believe it or not, without a mask. And on top of that, they are also doing hand sanitization uh, stations throughout this uh, airport. There's more than 500 of those stations throughout here so you can get your hands wiped down as you go through. But you're talking about right now, the rates are exploding throughout this country where you have 14 states at record highs and hospitalization rates are very high. And what people are concerned about, especially who work in the healthcare space, is what happens after this holiday weekend? Where do all the people end up if they do get sick? Now, we've seen COVID testing centers throughout the country um, packed with people who are trying to get a COVID test before going home. But as you know, that doesn't really help you because you can come in contact with COVID here at the airport or in the taxi or somewhere else before getting to your destination. So that is a big concern um, in terms of healthcare providers because we know when people cluster together, that's when we see these rates sort of uh, get higher and higher. Um, They're expecting more than a million people to pass through this airport just this holiday weekend. So it's something that's obviously gonna test and push the boundaries of what we've been expecting so far. Um, Healthcare officials are definitely worried about it. In fact, listen to Dr. Fauci. When you leave a location, have to go to an airport or wherever it is, a train station, et cetera, the possibility of exposing yourself and then going home to your home community for a a wonderful traditional Thanksgiving holiday might actually unfortunately be a source of an even amplification of the surge. Yeah, and that's exactly what we're going to watch for, despite the authorities' best efforts to say, please stay at home. As you quite rightly said, Ryan, people are fatigued and they want to see their families. It's, it's tough. Ryan Young at Atlantis Hartsfield, Jackson International Airport. Great to have you with us, Ryan. Thank you. To Europe now, where some nations are beginning to relax restrictions. French President Emmanuel Macron expected to ease the national lockdown just a day after British Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced a similar move in England. Germany also set to outline plans for Christmas and New Year's celebrations. And Melissa Bell is in Paris. Can't help but compare and contrast here, Melissa. What are we expecting from France specifically? My understanding is the lockdown still holds, but it will be a gradual relaxing of some of these measures. That's right, Julia. What they want to avoid are really the mistakes that were made at the end of the last partial lockdown when uh, the measures were lifted fairly quickly and everyone went back to life as usual and the second wave hit France even harder and faster than had the first. So this time, with those lessons in mind, uh, we expect that the government's going to announce a gradual lifting, so in three parts. So there's uh, pretty strict restrictions that are in place right now. Some of them will be lifted, Julia, by December 1st. Uh, The others uh, will uh, be lifted closer to just before the end of your holidays, with some remaining in place until January of 2021. And that's because they say this partial lockdown has been pretty effective. You need only look at those figures. Positivity rate here in France right now, Julia, 13.3% from a high just a couple of weeks ago of more than 20%. Uh, and also, in terms of the number of new cases, we're down on Monday to fewer than 5,000 new cases. Now, remember, that was the aim of Emmanuel Macron when he announced this second partial lockdown at a time when we were seeing rises of every day of more like 
30 or 40,000 new cases. So this, semi, this partial lockdown has been effective, and they want to ensure that they prevent those figures from rising again. But clearly, a great deal of, invest in, of in, impatience, as you'd imagine, from all those businesses, and I'm thinking here particularly of restaurants, that are unlikely to be allowed to open this side of the new year, Julia. Yeah, but it proves, doesn't it, those stringent lockdown measures work, but they come at great cost. Melissa, very quickly, Germany, lockdown light they went into, I remember, on November 2nd. What are we expecting from the Germans now? That's right. They had, uh, much more slowly than France, seen an improvement in their figures, but had been looking at the fact that they had not got them down as far as they would have liked to have them down. So there, too, a question of whether uh, and how long these lockdown measures need to stay in place, uh, because this is something we're going to have to be dealing with, Julia, until these vaccines become available. Clearly, they've given everyone a lot of hope. But what all governments and the the World Health Organization have said is that, look, even when those vaccines come in and alongside those vaccines and until we can get our populations uh, vaccinated, you're going to be needing some kinds of restrictions on people's movements for many months to come. Yeah, for many months to come. Melissa Bell in Paris, therefore, is thank you so much as always. To vaccines now and new details from Russia on its Sputnik V coronavirus vaccine. Moscow says their vaccine will be cheaper than some of the others and the first international deliveries will take place in January. Matthew Chance joins us now. Matthew, we're looking at interim data here, but in terms of efficacy rates, it's pretty similar to the likes of Pfizer, BioNTech and what we've heard from some of the cases in the AstraZeneca vaccine as well. However, this one, like AstraZeneca, far cheaper than some of the US-based vaccines. Yeah, cheaper, um, uh, easier to, or as easy to carry, if not easier to, to transport around the world. And the Russians would argue better as well, because you know what, what the uh, latest interim data uh, indicates is that you've got efficacy of upwards of 95%. Uh, they've made it clear in, in that data, this is the, the, the Kremlin-backed developers of Sputnik V, the Russian vaccine. They've made it clear that they've recorded or observed that sort of effic- eff- efficacy um, 42 days after they administered the first dose of the vaccine. Of course, it's a two-dose uh, vaccine as well. And so that's right up there with, with the other big vaccine candidates that have been you know, disclosing their results over the past couple of weeks um, as well. All of them, by the way, have to be published and peer-reviewed to uh, get some confirmation from sort of independent sources about that extremely high rate of efficacy. Um, in, in terms of the cost, yes, the Russians are obviously pitching this uh, at the cheaper end of the spectrum of, of vaccines uh, that are going to be made available to the world. They're saying it's going to be less than $10 per dose, um, which isn't quite as cheap, as I understand it, as the Oxford University AstraZeneca uh, vaccine. Um, but it, it is going to be very appealing to large swathes of the world. And they've, they've already done deals, remember, Julia, with countries in the Middle East, in South America, in Africa, in Asia, and, and as well, of course, you know, as many countries in the former Soviet Union who will be depending on this Sputnik V, this Russian uh, developed vaccine as their main defence against coronavirus and against uh, COVID-19. In, in terms of the issue of you know, transportation, that's been a big issue, I know, because you know, some of those vaccines out there, they require sort of ultra low temperatures uh, to get around. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about the Russian vaccine is it can be transported and developed in powder form um, and then diluted, you know, just before it's administered. 
and that powder can be transported in temperatures up to plus four degrees uh, centigrade. And so, you know, it does have, you know, if, if it's found to be, you know, as, as safe and as effective as its developers say it is, it, it is going to have certain advantages over some of its competitors as well. Julia. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see um, how this all plays out. Matthew Chance, thank you so much for uh, that update there. All right, so to come on First Move, get in line. COVID vaccines are coming, but who gets one first? The CDC has a list. We speak to the man who helped write it. And no vaccine, no travel. Qantas is CEO on the future of international travel, perhaps. Stay with us, there's more to come. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. stocks are inching once again towards record territory. Stock markets also got a late session boost on Monday on news that President-elect Joe Biden may nominate former Fed chair and market friend, market friendly, let's call it that, Janet Yellen for Treasury Secretary. You could say investors were yelling for Yellen. She's certainly respected, I think, by investors and seen as a safe pair of hands. Airlines are among the best gainers pre-market on hopes that vaccines will boost economic reopenings. But of course, the near-term reality remains far more challenged. The airline trade group IATA sees global carriers losing more than $38 billion next year. And that's $23 billion more than they'd previously forecast. Now, as we edge closer to a COVID-19 vaccine, the question now is who should get it and how should people be prioritised in terms of order? Healthcare workers should be top of the list, says the CDC's vaccine panel, followed by other essential workers, those with high-risk medical conditions and the over-65s. The panel also drew up a list of ethical issues to consider, and clearly there's plenty of them. Joining us now is Dr William Schaffner, member of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunisation Practices and Professor of Medicine at the Vanderbilt University Medical Centre. Dr Schaffner, great to have you on the show with us uh, Great to get your insights on this. Healthcare workers, clearly the priority. They're on the front lines. It's just prioritising everybody else that gets more challenging. Just talk us through the thinking on this. Well, Julia, the uh, CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunisation Practices, the ACIP, has been discussing this now for several months. And the issues of equity, fairness, have been very, very important, as well as trying to determine where the impact of the vaccine could be greatest, uh, how many hospitalizations and deaths can be prevented. And just as you said, what the committee settled on was first tier healthcare workers, including those who work in nursing homes. And then yesterday they added the nursing home residents themselves. Because if you were going to be in an uh, in a nursing home, vaccinating the healthcare workers, you might as well vaccinate the residents also, and they are the source of many outbreaks and hospitalizations. Then after that, essential workers, the people who keep our society working, many of them people of color, somewhat lower socioeconomic status, these are populations particularly affected by COVID, and so we wanted for reasons of equity to make sure that the vaccine reached those people. And then third in line, people age 65 and older and others younger who had chronic underlying illnesses, those people more subject to severe disease. So that was the sequence. It won't go exactly like that in real life. There'll be overlap, of course. 
And I hope that many of those people will indeed come forward to be vaccinated. We really have to reach out to them, establish trust with everybody, particularly those communities of color, to make sure that they take advantage of this new vaccine. You know, it's interesting what you said about the long-term care facilities. I was just looking at some of the data on this. It, those people, the residents in the long-term care facilities account for less than 1% of the U.S. population. Staff accounted for 6% of cases and residents 39% of deaths in the United States. So the vulnerability here is clear. But you made a very interesting point about getting people's confidence up to simply come forward and say, look, I'm willing to get a vaccine. And some of the debate on social media last night was was quite interesting to me. It was saying you have to give this vaccine to people that will benefit and say, yeah, you know, some of the side effects were uncomfortable, but here I am. I can go back out into life versus perhaps giving it to people that may have died of alternative complications or other illnesses anyway, and perhaps incite some fear about the vaccine. How do those kind of calculations and considerations figure? Because it's a difficult conversation, but building confidence in this vaccine is clearly important too. So, Julia, all of those issues came up in the discussions Mm. very, very extensively. It's being transparent, letting people know what's going to happen in advance. Clearly, when you vaccinate people in nursing homes, some of them even without vaccine would have passed away, for example, in the couple of weeks or month subsequent to receiving the vaccine. We can't assume a causal relationship. We'll have to talk to not only the people, the residents in the nursing homes, but all of their families so that they understand what the circumstances are. Yeah, it makes sense. Do we have enough supplies? Will we have enough supplies to give the vaccine to all of the people that you mentioned, the most vulnerable, the over 65s altogether? Or will you even find yourself having to choose perhaps between certain subsets of those people? Because even that's a difficult choice. Oh, it is. Uh, It's clear we won't have enough vaccine on Mm. the front end. My own institution, my own medical center is talking already about sub-prioritization. Suppose we only get X number of doses, who among the healthcare workers should go first? So those discussions will be ongoing and our state health departments will be providing some guidance, but many institutions will have to uh, address those issues on their own. You know, it's fascinating, uh, Dr. Schaffner. Last week, we spoke to a member of ECRI, the nonprofit, who was saying to us, and he was a, a doctor who said he won't give it to his family or take it himself for six months because he wants to wait to get the emergency use authorization. Just get six months of safety data rather than relying on two months. Work out the distribution, and the, the logistics in the interim and just build confidence. And it goes back to sort of where we started the discussion. Was there any debate about that? in this panel. Perhaps we need a bit longer to collect more safety data and understand the side effects of these new platform technologies with these vaccines, or is it just get the vaccines out there and get us back to life? It's it's not exactly like the latter, Julia, but you do pose the issue that has been widely discussed in the context of a pandemic where in the United States, a thousand or more people are dying every day. How much safety data do you need before you're ready to go ahead with the vaccine? There's a tension there and we've come to a middle ground, right? We're going to continue to assess the safety data 
as we go along and vaccinate hundreds of thousands, indeed millions of people. If any signal comes up, we'll pause our vaccination program. I hope that doesn't happen. And of course, the skepticism and the concern is understandable. Some people will be early acceptors. Others will stand back a little bit and wait to see how things go. It's all about trust and good information and reassurance. Yeah, and we need that clarity and that information now to convince people that this is the right thing to do, if indeed we believe it is. Um, What do you think the biggest challenge will be? Will it be the lack of supplies in the interim, the challenges over distribution, or will it be convincing enough people to take this vaccine to get us to a point where we have a degree of herd immunity? Well, all of those things are going to uh, come into play. Uh, As I like to say, this is the third phase. Uh, The first phase was actually creating the vaccine. The second phase was trialing it and seeing that the vaccines work. This third phase, delivering the vaccine to 330 million people just in the United States, let uh, let alone around the world, that's the hardest phase. And we have a whole new set of problems that we will confront. But we can do this if we work steadfastly. And one of the things I like is that the political veneer over this vaccine, at least in this country, has abated now that the election is behind us and we can put public health and science to the forefront. That's interesting. Do do you believe that the administration change will allow an end to some of the science scepticism that's perhaps clouded? In fact, it has clouded the execution, the focus on this vaccine and the science behind tackling COVID. Do you think this will be a clean break and actually we can lose some of that science scepticism from now on? It will take some work. I Mm. hope the new administration is wise and stands back and lets public health and uh, the scientists and we physicians go up front and do all of the communicating and just let the politicians support what it is that we're trying to do. If that happens, I think we have a greater chance of success. Fantastic. So great to uh, speak to you and uh, no doubt we'll speak to you soon. Dr. William Schaffner, member of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Great to have you with us, sir. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, the opening bell for the second time this week. And we've got a higher open across the board for the major averages with the Dow and the S&P nearing records once again. Investors uh, have more certainty about the transition of presidential power in the United States. That's helping sentiment. Also, I think positive vaccine news more broadly, but also Russia today adding to the pile, not hurting sentiment either. We called yesterday Medicinal Monday. Perhaps we can call today Troika Tuesday. Russia says its Sputnik vaccine is some 95% effective in interim data. The dollar flat in recent trading, but still near three-month lows. We look across assets. Investors seeing more opportunities perhaps in other currencies on hopes for economic rebounds and recovery too. A Bank of America survey says money managers are turning more bullish on emerging market assets. In the meantime, the Bitcoin bounce continues. The cryptocurrency trading above $19,000 for the first time in three years. Less than 5% away from records. And as you can see, up a further 4.5% today. 
All right, a global liquidity trap. That's what the IMF chief economist says we're facing as central banks around the world run out of tools to stimulate the global economy. In a recent op-ed for the Financial Times, Gita Gopinath says fiscal policy must play a leading role and calls for governments to spend more to aid the recovery. And I'm excited to say that Gita joins us now. Fantastic to have you with us on the show. Your op-ed struck me about the need for more spending support for the global economy, but it was a message that you echoed coming out of the G20 as well, and the fact that coordinated spending is better than the sum of the individual parts. Talk us through your hopes. Hi, Julia. So yes, indeed, we think uh, fiscal policy has to be on the forefront here. I mean, the way we think about it is, firstly, we're not out of the woods which means that it's very important not to prematurely withdraw fiscal support, otherwise recoveries will get derailed. Second is we enter this crisis already with insufficient demand in the sense of investment being relatively weak when you compare that to savings, which is one of the reasons why interest rates have been so low for so long and are expected to continue, which is why I made that remark on being in a global liquidity trap. And the third is there is a big need for uh, public investment spending to provide public goods when it comes to infrastructure, when it comes to uh, greening the economy and greening the recovery. So for all these three reasons, we think it's absolutely essential for fiscal policy to play an important role. And when this stimulus is provided simultaneously across countries, you get a much bigger bang for the buck. You get a much stronger impact on the global economy when this is done together across economies. The statistic that jumped out from your op-ed for me, and I just want to repeat it back for our audience, 97% of advanced economies, central banks have pushed their interest rates below 1%. In a fifth of the world now, they're negative. It's just tough, to your point, to continue to cut rates and expect to see the same kind of Um, lift to economies. What you're saying is if you want to create that demand response, get people spending, create jobs, it has to come from governments here and they have to spend rather than just lend as central banks do. So central banks have been uh, essential for uh, preventing a catastrophic financial crisis and for helping with the recovery. But with interest rates now at rock bottom and, like I said, in 97% of advanced economies and greater reliance on other kinds of measures like quantitative easing, which we know, while beneficial, is not as powerful in bringing about recoveries. And the third, that we are dealing with solvency issues, which again is mostly in the domain of fiscal policy. For all these reasons, uh, fiscal policy really has to be the main game in town. And that certainly makes sense for the United States. I mean, you are saying that at the IMF that a $2 trillion stimulus package, which, of course, Congress has been battling about now for many months, would add 3% to growth next year. And it would allow jobs to be bought back far quicker than at least at this stage we're looking at. It's vital that the United States and the U.S. Congress does something more here to support demand. Uh, Absolutely. And I would add to that that it is also vital to do it soon because, uh, you know, unemployment insurance benefits should be extended. Supplemental benefits should also be renewed. Transfers to states and local governments. I mean, all of these are essential parts of the package. And right now, 
there is a difficult time in terms of virus counts going up. We worry about slowing momentum. And despite the fact that the U.S. economy has done well in recovering, but still, we don't want to lose that momentum, which is why timing is also important. Getting it done sooner than later is really essential. I just want to get your um, take, if you're allowed or willing to say something about the prospect of Janet Yellen, former Fed chief, former head of the White House Council of Economic Advisers, potentially in the frame here to become Treasury Secretary of the United States, just in terms of her background as a labor economist. You you look at her on paper and say, this is someone that understands the challenges of of the U.S. economy and also the limitations, as we've discussed, of of monetary policy. What what do you make if you uh, can weigh in here on this potential decision? I mean, she is an outstanding economist with exceptional experience. I mean, look at the I mean, having a Treasury Secretary who's also been chair of the Federal Reserve is just phenomenal, knowing the mix of monetary and fiscal policy interaction. And like you said, she is a labor economist. And I think one of the big challenges coming out of this crisis is the concern about uh, employment, about labor force participation. So she is exceptionally well prepared for the challenges. And if I may add, I would be thrilled to see a woman uh, as Treasury Secretary. Yeah, it's better, you know, better late. Uh, it's been a while. It should have happened earlier, but I'm glad it would finally happen if it does. I love that you add that. And I love that too. So I should join you in that um, in that joy. One of the other things that came out of your statement from the G20, and I think this is vital to discuss too, the impact of, of vaccines and not just vaccines for the richest nations in the world, but the benefit of getting vaccines out to the entire world as soon as we can. Your predictions of what this would mean for a raise in in global income over the next five years is just astonishing. Trillions and trillions of dollars. Yeah, so the number we have is $9 trillion between now and 2025, which is humongous compared to the cost of deploying uh, uh, those vaccines and treatments and tests around the world. So that really has to be a number one priority for the international community to make sure that happens so that we can bring back a faster global recovery uh, and it's not just concentrated in some parts of the world. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Gita, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for shining a light on some of these critical issues and also for our audience as well. And you won't know this, but there was a light, the sunlight shining across your face throughout that interview. So um, shining a light for both reasons. Gita Gopinath, Chief Economist at the IMF. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Great to have you with us. All right, after the break, tickets, money, passport, and a vaccination certificate to major airlines says in the future you can't fly without one. A glimpse into what might be coming next. back to the show with a look into the future of air travel. The Australian carrier Qantas says passengers will have to prove they've been vaccinated against COVID-19 before boarding international flights. Qantas, the first airline to say this publicly, but others are expected to follow. The rule change will be brought in when vaccinations become widely available. Just listen to what the CEO had to say. We are looking at changing our terms and conditions to say for international travellers that we will ask people to have a vaccination before they can get on the aircraft. Uh, Whether you need that domestically, uh, we'll have to see what happens with COVID-19 in the market. But certainly for international visitors coming out and people leaving the country, we think that's a necessity. Richard Quest joins us now. Wow, Richard. 
I can just imagine all sorts of problems with this, not only the timing of when you decide to, to enact it. What do you make of this? It's the future. I mean, whatever problems they're going to be, that's the way it's going to be, Julia. Uh, IATA, the aviation organisation, is looking into something called Travel Pass. There's a private consortium that's talking about a common pass. And the idea will be really simple. You have a vaccination. It is done from a reputable lab. It is stored securely in a digital vault somewhere. And the airline and governments have access to it. This is not new. Uh, you, you, you may not have ever had one of these, but for those of us of a certain age uh, who travel to certain countries, have a vaccination booklet, which has lots of little stamps in it that says I've been vaccinated for typhoid, yellow fever and all sorts of things. Now, Julia, how do we get this into digital, secure form that can't be forged? And once you've right. done that... Then really, you're off to the races. Airlines just log on, they see your vaccination and you're free to go. Yeah, I mean, that was my first suggestion when you held that up. I was about to say, hang on a second, I could just fill in a line on that and say I've had the COVID vaccine. To your point, this can't be faked and there's going to be, I think, um, people who try and do it. Surely they've got to find a way to do this securely. It's going to take time, Richard. And that's one of the big challenges. In the meantime, for those that can't travel, it seems, without until we get the vaccine, BA selling off its wares, clearly needs to raise money. But also for those that no. want to recreate the airline experience at home, I did look at the website. Champagne flutes, I think that's a bit of us. No. Teacups no, as well. they've all gone. Sold no, all gone. out, Richard. This is an outrage. However... They've all gone. Um, lots of airlines are doing it. The, the reason they're doing it, I don't think it's money raising as much as they've got too many of them. They've lost the 747 yeah. fleet. They don't need as many of this, that or the other. And they've seen from other airlines like Qantas, which sold off first class bars and Singapore Airlines, they've seen how popular this is. It's a good feel good. But Julia, I couldn't get the flutes and I couldn't get the teapots or the. the, the but how about this? Look at this. This is right up your street for your entertaining. A nice first class meal trolley. I can just see you and I'll join you at the other end and we can walk our way up and down the lounge serving canapes and champagne to those who need it. £250, Richard. You're a big spender. I managed to find a four-shelf oven portable for £50. Now, that's a bargain. I'm afraid to say I do actually here have loads of airline souvenirs, but I can't show you them because I'm not sure they were legitimate... They were not legitimately removed from the aircraft. (laughs) Richard, like what? How big were these articles that you may have pilfered from an airline? Not saying a word. I'm keeping stum. But I do have, actually, it's not true. I do have a very nice set of Singapore Airlines first class coffee mugs and they were legitimately received. Okay, perfect. And any airline that's watching that wants to donate anything to Richard legally this time as opposed to anything else. I was really (laughs) disappointed. I was really disappointed. I went on that website and I thought I'm going to buy half a dozen BA first class cups and saucers and they were all gone. I'm not surprised. Hashtag avgeeks the world across love this sort of stuff. And I am Absolutely up there. But your, but by the way, your meal trolley gets delivered in time for you to serve Christmas dinner. I know. Dinner. I'll, I'll consider it. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. 
Yeah, Thank you. I'm better at ordering food as opposed to making it. Thank you, <laughs> Richard Quest. Always a pleasure. And those things were on sale at whatabuy.co.uk if you'd like to see what we were talking about. All right, still to come on First Move. We have liftoff of a different kind. China successfully launching an ambitious mission to the moon. We'll discuss what this means for the space race. Move. We want to bring you a special report now from our new series, Connecting Africa, where we profile the people, projects and companies revolutionizing African business. Eleni Jokos met up with an award-winning logistics company that's helping cargo owners become more efficient, which in turn lowers the costs of the goods. have inefficient logistics, that additional cost ends up in the cost of the goods that you're purchasing. So the reason for Lori is to bring more efficiency so that we can lower the cost of goods and make our countries more competitive and goods more affordable. Jean-Claude Humawu and his team raised more than $20 million in 2016 to launch Lorry Systems, described as the Uber of trucks. I would say what distinguishes Lorry most is its technology, which is a modular cloud-based platform of applications, multiple applications that are interconnected. So in the logistics process, you have cargo owners, you have transporters, but you also have clerks on the ground. And in order for logistics to be efficient, all of those different parties have to be able to communicate in real time, which allows the cargo to move quicker. Before lorry systems came into the market, everything was handwritten, whereas today, everything is online. We've saved a lot of time and money. We've taken a different approach in every region, taking the time to customize and custom design uh, software for the continent. So whereas in East Africa, we were fo focused on bulk cargo, in West Africa, we focus much more on fast-moving consumer goods, so finished goods. Nile Agro Industries Limited is a typical cargo owner using the platform in East Africa. When the truck leaves Mombasa, you are able to track your timings, so your customers are aware of when you will be in the market, when the products will be in the market. Uh, that has really helped us a lot. The company has started using lorry systems to export flour beyond the local market to South Sudan. In order for two countries to both feel comfortable with the movement of goods, more information, more transparency, more visibility is going to be needed. And that is precisely what our platform brings. All right, no mooning around here. China, the latest nation to join the space race, they've launched a probe to Mars. I didn't mean Mars, I meant the moon. Christy Lustout has the details. 
China has successfully launched its Chang'e 5 robotic spacecraft, the mission to bring back rock samples from the moon. It has been more than 40 years since the Americans and the Soviets brought back samples for analysis, and China is hoping to be only the third country to achieve this feat. Uh, the Chang'e 5, named after the ancient Chinese goddess of the moon, has two main objectives to gain scientific knowledge by collecting samples, to understand more about the origins of the moon, and to gain engineering expertise. Now, through the task of sampling and returning, China can enhance its technical know-how for space exploration. Now, the entire mission is scheduled to take around 23 days. In mid-December, the lunar samples are set to return to Earth in a capsule landing in China's Inner Mongolia region. At the launch site, the Chang'e 5 mission spokesman spoke to the media about the challenges ahead. Compared to the circumlunar and moon landing explorations that we managed to implement, the biggest challenge of the sampling mission, I believe, is the work of moonscape sampling, moonscape takeoff, rendezvous, and docking of the lunar orbit, as well as the high-speed re-entry to the Earth. These parts are the biggest challenges that we care about. Asked when China was planning to put astronauts on the moon, the spokesman said future lunar exploration activities should be carried out in the combination of man and machine. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. So that's the moon. I've already predicted they're going to try for Mars. My apologies, getting overexcited. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chasley. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.